What we do here is go back, 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 back. back. And welcome into episode Venting Wave of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Stabman, and as always, I'm joined by my good friends, Angelo Inglisa and Jake Long, as we rewatch, relive, and remember a different wrestling pay-per-view every single week. And this week, we are going right back to maybe the darkest year in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. We are in the summer of 1995. SummerSlam 1995 from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've got Mabel in the main event. We've got all kinds of just insipid crap to watch from this horrible year of WWF's history. And we've got ourselves a show with some highs, but a lot of boring stuff on it as well. So looking forward to talking about this one. What's going on, boys? Every time you say the number in Spanish, especially now that we're in the 20s, I mentally think that's wrong because in German, it's always the second number first when you get to double digits, except for like the teens. So like 29 is neun und zwanzig. So whenever you say venti uh, nueve, I'm like, wait, no, is it nueve und vente? Well, guess what, Angelo? German isn't even a romance language. They come from two completely different language families. You're right. So <laughs> Shut up, bro. Hey, wait, let's talk about why Angelo had to learn German and how that went about. I yes. Well, no, I knew German back from high school. It wasn't just because I had to learn German in college. The whole reason and why... Not I, only did you have to learn it in college, you had to learn it within like a month. And I did because I remembered a lot from high school. <laughs> oh, man. I'm doing... David, to answer your question, I'm doing better than Angelo's German knowledge level. Yes, probably true. Of course, of course, you had yourself a little incident this morning that, you know, we don't need to get into. But... Oh, man, my day started off great. Finding out somebody broke into my truck, ran off with some stuff. However, uh, this is going to be a real test. And let's find out how funny Jake actually is. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> honestly, you having somebody pilfer, pilfer your wallet out of your truck is just preparation for you to lose your money to me when I win the fantasy football league this year. That's not, I'm, I'm not, not only cause I'm coming. Money, cause wait, I'm coming. Wait, what was our bet? Is it uh, a, a photo shoot with you as my father? Yes. We're doing a father son photo shoot with me as the father. If I win the league. <laughs> well, wait, I'm coming baby. You're at four. David, and I kind of hope you win. Honestly. You're, you're at four and six right now, right? I'm at five and six. You're at five and I six after won. this week. I just locked up the dub. So I'm on, I am on fire right now. My half of the, of the bracket it's not good. I win these last two. I'm definitely in the playoffs. I think locked in guarantee. Oh, so you you have nobody, some point. You have some nobody, points to make up. If I win, you already have a hard climb. Nobody wants my. I've got the momentum, man. Nobody wants to see me right now. Nobody David, wants to David see the Seahawks in the playoffs. Nobody wants to see me with with Chase Edmonds, baby, and uh, and and my man New Hopkins. And well, my man Adam Thielen, I'm hooked on a Thielen right now, baby. Yeah, but he's out I with COVID. It. It's fine. I got Brandon Ayuk, who's coming back from COVID. So we're just swapping them all out. Is this a fantasy but, football podcast? No, it is, is not. Let's get to something that I actually enjoy and talk about wrestling. Although we should note that Angelo once did a fantasy football podcast with a guy who is now posting anti-Semitic memes on Twitter a lot. <laughs> I also so, did it with Jay Blackwell and Nick Perillo. Yes. 
big shouts to Nikki Pete. Oh man, I miss Nikki Pete. Nikki Pete for listening to this. I just want you to know that I love you. We miss you, but, buddy. Yes, we all love Nikki P. But let's go to something we don't love quite as much. SummerSlam 1995. Everybody, let's remember some guys. Okay. So it is August 27th, 19, 1995. We are at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, the old home of the Pittsburgh Penguins. We got 18,062, the list of attendance. We've got just the classic, terrible combination of Vince McMahon and Jerry the King Lawler on commentary for the biggest party of the summer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we start out with two of the best workers in the company at the time. This is a really good on-paper matchup that really comes through. We have in one corner the one 2 three kid, Sean Waltman, taking on Hakushi, who is one of my favorite guys in WWF at this point. Uh, a guy they had brought in from Michinoku Pro Wrestling, who was an awesome worker, had a cool gimmick, had a cool look. He was really, and I, I said this as I was talking to you guys last night, my take is that Hakushi was too good for the WWF at this time. They did not deserve him because uh, he's awesome. And he shows up in WWF and he's jobbing out to Barry Horowitz. And he's been given the very culturally sensitive nickname, uh, the modern day kamikaze Hakushi. So... This is actually a really good match to start off the show. In terms of just real like ring work, it's the best match that we get on this show. They really go back and forth with just kind of some simple chain and some simple spots, but it looks great. They're so athletic. Everything is really, really crisp. Hakushi hits some really cool high spots that you don't really see that kind of stuff in WWF at this point outside of, you know, Hakushi and 123Kid were the two guys who kind of really did really slick high-flying stuff at this time. He hit, uh, Hakushi hits a cartwheel handspring elbow into the corner. He springs off the middle rope and lands on him for a two count. He then hits the space flying tiger drop to the outside. He hits a diving middle rope clothesline for a two count. He goes up, goes for the top rope splash, but misses. One, two, three kid comes back. He hits a pop-up drop kick. He hits a springboard crossbody to the outside. He goes over the top rope with a slingshot leg drop for a near fall, goes up, Hits a top rope splash for a near call. He then, we get to the finish of the match. He goes for the running spinning kick, but Hakushi catches him out of the air in the middle of the spin. Hits a back suplex. Nice slick finish. He gets the pin. Nine minutes and 28 seconds. And like I said, just a really good, high-quality lead-off to the show between two great workers. Yeah, it does seem like the one thing that we found out is that wrestlers, know, wrestling companies know how to book the opening matches because they always find something that's going to hook in an audience. The problem is the rest of the card and whether they keep the rest of the audience. Um, Hakushi did look really cool. I enjoyed like his ring gear when he walked out to the ring. He's kind of like uh, a different version, like the mid-card level of The Undertaker, calling him the White Death, having those symbols all over his body and like... I don't know. He had that air about him. I thought he could be like a very solid guy. He did do a lot of good in-ring work. One, two, three, kid, X-Pac. He always has something cool. He always has a high-flying stuff. Uh, this match wasn't my favorite one that we, we've seen him in, but like getting to experience Akushi is definitely one of the high parts of this entire event. If this – here's my thing. If this match was one of the best on the card, then we're in for a long goddamn night. Cause like sure, it, like it was good. It was a very much a nothing match though. 
this could have been like the the ten o'clock match on Raw or the nine o'clock match now. Like there's just kind of nothing to it. Like it was fine. And the crowd sure. like like the crowd didn't give a single shit about it until Hakushi won. The crowd kind of popped and then booed. And then we went backstage. Now were they doing weekly like shows on air at this point? Or is oh, this yeah. still like yeah. okay. I mean, they always had been, but I mean, by this point, Raw, they've been doing Raw for two and a half years. That was, that had kind of become the main show by that point. Um, and interestingly enough, and we'll talk about this a little later on, but the next night was actually the debut of WCW Nitro. It was the, the first Nitro was the next night after SummerSlam 95. So we're starting oh, to, fun fact. you know, approach the beginning of the Monday Night Wars. But yeah, I mean, Jake, as you said, like this is a match that could have been just a random match on a Raw or a, a Superstars or whatever other shows they had at this point. But, you know, half this card is made up of matches like that. And if right. you're going to do that, at least let them get two guys who are really good workers in there, let them do some stuff and let them have, you know, 10 good minutes. That's what they do. So, I mean, I don't think you can really complain too yeah. much. I mean, I'm not complaining. I guess my complaint is more like, that this card, I guess it's more about the card than this match in particular. Yeah. You know I mean? Well, at the same time, I mean, you know, we talked about, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, we talked about Starcade. Was it 98 was the one we just did a couple weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Goldberg and Nash. And yeah. like half of the card is like Norman Smiley versus Prince Iokea. Yeah. You know, that's all, like all the half of the card. Yeah. But, like, but even like the buildup in this, like in this one, you know, to King Mabel and Kevin Nash, it's like, What's the point? You know, I don't know. Yeah. But I, Angelo, really quickly. Uh, so since Hakushi, I guess, debuted the uh, the writing, I guess, Japanese symbols on his body, who then followed that up in like 2011? Oh, was that uh, ten, uh, Lord Tensai? Lord Tensai. Yes. A-Train. Formerly known as A-Train, yep. Yes. <laughs> Formerly known as Albert from t- uh, TNA. TNA. I'm sad that, that Lord Tensai did not originate the writing Japanese symbols on your, your body. Yes. Me sad. The, the coolest guy to do it was uh, Goto in, I think, 2015, 2016, when he had his big match with Okada. He came out with the whole Hakushi thing on, and he had all the symbols painted all over himself. <laughs> and that was the night that I was certain that Goto was going to win the title. And guess what, baby? Go? Goto is never going to win the title. You they need, worked me. I, you need to send me this match because I am a Goto mark as well. So, oh man, I uh, need to see this. There are dozens of us, baby. There are dozens, dozens of us. But yeah, Hakushi, way too good for '95 WWF for this this pit that we are in right now. Like, too cool of a worker, too too good and crisp and agile in the ring, too cool of a gimmick, too cool of a look. Just too badass of a guy to belong in WWF at this point. Much like Too Cold Scorpio was too good for his, uh, it came like 20 years too early in WCW. Yes. Much like Too Cold Scorpio did not belong in WCW in 1993. <laughs> you know, Hakushi did not belong in 95 WWF. He was just too cool and too good, and they didn't deserve him. But he was good in this match. Like you put him in a time machine and put him on NXT now against like, uh, uh, carrying cross that would be a hell of a match i feel like you just pulled out a guy carrying cross 
I've already forgotten that he existed. <laughs> he got hurt like two months ago, and I already forgot. He that was he, he was the guy. I almost forgot him too. I'm just like, wait, who was the NXT champion that was really cool that I kind of marked out for? I'm like, oh yeah, Karrion Cross. Yeah, and then we never saw him again, and he's just gone forever. But yeah, uh, Hakushi, real cool. We love him. We love to see him, and highly recommended. Uh, a few months before, I think it was the first in your house. He had an amazing match with Bret Hart, which is one of my favorite WWF matches of this of this time period, and I recommend it to everybody involved. And we're going to have some more Bret later on tonight. Uh, backstage, we've got everybody's favorite on this podcast. You know, we all love Michael P.S. Hayes. We've all been very vocal about our love for Michael P.S. Hayes. He is here as Doc Hendricks, being super obnoxious on the mic. He's with King Mabel backstage. Of course, Mabel, later known as Viscera, Big Daddy V., he was in the middle of his one and only ever real main event push in WWF, which did not go well for anybody involved. Uh, he's in the main event tonight. He cuts a promo on Diesel in which he calls Big Daddy Cool Diesel Big Daddy Fool, which <laughs> I think was a great own from Mabel. I hey, what's the what, what's the greatest play on somebody's name during a promo, David? I don't know. What is it, Jacob? Isn't it Big Titty? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big titty, go home. <laughs> ruined, a, ruined a man's career. In a completely ended his career entirely. Oh, my God. I love that. I love remembering that that happened. If, if, you have, guys, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen that, just go look up who uh, – it was Curtis Blades, right? Yeah, it was Curtis that. Blades. Yeah. Uh, he called uh, Justin, Justin – Justin Big Pretty Willis. Big Pretty. <laughs> after, he, after Curtis Blades beat his ass, he said, Big titty, go home. <laughs> and ended his career for the rest of his life. He's big titty. <laughs> I feel so bad. For him. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, it's so good. But uh, next up, we have another kind of just rando match. We have a fancy young Connecticut blue blood by the name of Hunter Hurst Helmsley. He'll never big, get over. Complete jabroni that will never go anywhere in this business. Taking on the real star of the show. Start your engines, boys. It's race car man, Bob Holly. Bob Spark Plug Holly with a gorgeous flowing mullet uh, taking on young Triple H. Again, we talked about this version of Triple H, very beginning of his WWF career, like very beginning, first few months, doing kind of a shitty, like colonial American knockoff of the. WCW Lord Steven Regal gimmick, not remotely as good as Lord Steven Regal was. Um, and this is another kind of just, it's, this is really just a, kind of a nothing match. Um, Triple H takes the advantage early on. At one point he, and this actually got a, a reaction out of me, he whips Holly hard into the turnbuckle and Holly slams into this buckle with like the loudest sound I've ever heard in my yeah, life. I, I heard that too. I was like, holy, wow. like, I looked away for a second and I could have sworn like I heard him toss him into the guardrail. It was so loud, but it wasn't the guardrail. It was the turnbuckle, <laughs> which was wild. Um, Triple H beats him down. It gets the heat for a long time. Um, at one point, I actually liked this spot. Holly gets him in an abdominal stretch and then Triple H just from the abdominal stretch hip tosses him over the top rope to the outside, which I actually thought was a, a pretty cool spot. Holly gets his comeback. It's a DDT. He hits a big clothesline. He tries to then hit a back body drop out of the corner, but Triple H catches him. He hits the pedigree. He gets the pin. In seven minutes and 11 seconds, 
the victory for young Hunter Hurst Helmsley. I feel like this match, like when we talk about how this card is generally boring, this match you could kind of think is boring. I think this is a little bit slept on. I don't think it's a bad match. And I think the reason why I enjoyed it as much as I did was because you got to see a lot of the two characters in the ring. Because again, you have uh, Triple H at this point who is like going full on aristocrat mode he like he's still like this pompous prick that you want to see his get get his ass beat you have bob holly who's just super race car man like the crowds that always come to these shows really get behind him because he's a fan he's a gets you know good positive heat that way um and i thought they both put on a good match you got to see a lot of offense from bob holly you got to see a lot of offense from triple h um I still think it's weird. The weirdest thing for me is like how they had this version of Triple H go on such a long winning streak. Because when you see like this pompous, cheeky heel, you're like, all right, he's going to lose one of these eventually. And they just have him keep going and going and going. And so, so Vince is talking about it. And you just really want to see him get his ass beat. Do we know who broke his streak? Triple H's streak? Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to look that up because I don't know off the top of my head. But, like, I, I feel like that would have had a, at least a decent payoff in terms of pop. But, I don't know. I just enjoyed the fact that, like, you had two characters, like, two wrestlers who, like, very much have distinct mannerisms. They're going at it for seven minutes. And you know what? That's all you could ask for this time. Um, but are, you, are we sure that this was good? Because it wasn't. I don't know what you all are talking about. This was bad. They were cutting to backstage shit in the middle of the match. Have you yes. ever seen a good match that they have? Like, think about, like, okay, last night, Roman uh, Roman Reigns versus Drew McIntyre at, at Survivor Series. Do you think they would have cut to backstage in the middle of that match? No. They cut to the back of this match during the, this match because they were like, oh, this match kind of sucks. We'll just cut to the back and show them some other shit. I disagree. Bad. I think it's Bad. because of where it's placed on the card. So, okay. Do it during Barry Horowitz and Skip. Like... No, but because they Get had a lot of chicanery there. I'm you not ha- letting you all be 1995 WWF apologists. I am here to trash this show and the both of you. Look, we could trash the next match, but this one, like, <laughs> these two guys are fine. Okay, okay so, by the way, from what I can tell, Triple H's first uh, televised loss in WWF would not be until early the next year when he lost on the pre-show of the Royal Rumble to Duke the Dumpster Drozzy. Wow, they really got a lot of mileage out of that one. It was a disqualification. His first like clean loss was actually to Bret Hart on Raw in uh, February of '96. Oh, I actually remember that match because that was apparently like it was like a really good match, and it was like a they called it like a star-making performance for him. Yeah, I actually remember that. Or but, not remember it. I remember hearing about it. Well, as we all know, Bret Hart could have a great match with a dumpster. Shut up, Ange. Yes. Yes, Ange. You know, this match is boring. I mean, it's fine. You know, there's there's one or two spots in it that I liked, but, like, it's not adding anything to the show. You know what I mean? Like, do we really right. need to have this match? Just wait. The next three make it really bad. No, I mean, it was better than the next one. I don't know. I mean, the next the next couple are kind of mediocre i thought the the next one is probably the one of the worst matches on the card but we'll we'll talk about it in a second but yeah this is like one of those matches where it doesn't need to be there there's no build up for it 
Bob Holly wasn't doing anything at all at this time. Like I know they're trying to build up Hunter, but it's just there. It just exists. It's taking up space, and Smart it's not really. Plug. It's really not that good. Pad so, the stats, buddy. You got to I mean, you got to pad it out. You got to pad out the time. All these all these shows were two hours and forty three minutes ish at this point, but you know it. You could have you could have figured something else out. You could have done something else. You could have had someone better than Mabel in the main event, so you can have like a longer match in the main event than like eight minutes. That's something you could have done. But you think that Diesel's gonna go and be in a main event match that goes over ten minutes? You're out of your mind. It. He did it with Bret Hart. He was, that was about the only guy he would do it with. But he would do it with Bret Hart. So why isn't Bret Hart in the main event? Why is Bret Hart wrestling an evil dentist? Why is that happening? <laughs> Why do we that, need to that, do this? Why is he wrestling the, an evil dentist that Jerry Lawler like set on him? Why did the Bret Hart Jerry the King Lawler feud legit last over two years? Why did we care about that? <laughs> it legit went for two years, two full years. Uh, it's like the longest feud of all time was Bret Hart and Jerry the King Lawler for some reason, and it was all because like Jerry the King Lawler like called Bret Hart's dad old, and then they killed each other for two years. I don't know. David, are you mad? I'm not mad. I just, I don't get it, man. <laughs> I'm just not understanding it. But, you know, okay, it's... <laughs> we'll Hunter, Hunter wins, whatever. We're, we're doing it. <laughs> we're moving past it. We're moving past it. Oh, um, no, this match was fine. Yeah, whatever. It was fine. We are... Uh, next up, they show some nice highlights uh, between of a, a WWF tug of war between some wrestlers from the WWF and a bunch of Pittsburgh firefighters for charity. This was a thing that they used to do back in the 90s. And they used to always show highlights of stuff like this on program on, on WWF programming. And it's kind of a nice blast for the past, to back when they used to actually do stuff like this. Next up, we got some Nazis, boys. We got the Nazis are back. Remember the Nazis from last week? They are back. Uh, the, Harris, the Harris twins... At this point, known as the Blue Brothers, Jacob and Eli Blue, but still the same Nazis. You can still see the same covered up SS tattoos on their arms. They still have them. By this Even point. less covered up this time. Yes, because they, they in the five years or so in between SummerSlam 95 and last week's show that we did at WCW uh, Fall Brawl, they got more tattoos. They filled it out. This time, they have, they have fewer tattoos, so the ones they have, they're a lot more visible. They stick out a lot more. And they're Nazis. So we got the Nazis. They get the jobber entrance. They are accompanied by Uncle Zebekiah, their manager, who is later known as, uh, maybe known as Zeb Coulter from uh, uh, Alberto Del Rio, managed Alberto Del Rio, managed Jack Swagger in WWE in early 2010s. We the People, same guy. Um, and they are taking on one of the premier tag teams of the time in WWF, the Smoking Guns, Billy and Bart. We've talked about Billy and Bart before on In Your House 4 some weeks back. One of the pretty good tag teams of the time. Uh, two big guys who were pretty agile. Of course, Billy Gunn went on and had this great career. He's still around today. Uh, Billy, at one point, kind of hits a proto version of the Famouser, which became his uh, well-known finish later on in his career. But he hits one in this match just kind of early on. Doesn't get remarked upon, but... I liked seeing, you know, some of the moves that Billy would kind of do regularly later on in his career as a singles guy. You see him do in these matches, and I always, I always kind of, I always enjoy seeing that. 
Uh, Bart comes in. He hits a running cross body for a two count. But then the Blues take over. They get the heat for a long time. Couple big powerhouses doing powerhouse moves. Uh, they hit a big double spine buster on Billy for a two count. They're doing a lot of double teaming with the ref's back turned. One of them hits a power slam out of the corner for a two count. Billy comes back with a running face buster. He gets the hot tag to Bart. He runs wild for a little bit, but then he eats a big boot. But then the, they do the spot where the Blues run into each other. Bart desperately tags Billy back in, and they hit their finisher, the com combo sidewalk slam, top rope leg drop. The smoking guns beat the Nazis and defend the American way in six minutes and 10 seconds. A pretty mediocre match. I actually completely forgot this one occurred. I have no memory of watching it despite watching it. And that's probably because there's just too much of the blues brothers offense, which is just not enjoyable to watch. Cause I like the smoking guns. The smoking guns were one of the few good things about in your house Four, and I could not tell you anything that they did in this match because it was just felt like there's too much blues. At least the guns were over though. This is true. That's about guns the only thing over. I got for it. I liked when the guns first debuted in WWF. They used to actually like they would go out to the ring and they actually had like prop guns that would shoot blanks off into the into the crowd or like Ooh, they, would shoot them up in, they would shoot it up into the air. And like you could see it like legit startled the shit out of people. So they stopped <laughs> like they, they lasted like two weeks and they stopped doing it. I, was, I bet that got nixed real quick. <laughs> yeah, they tried, though. It was cool. Yeah. I mean, we've said enough about the Blue, Bro uh, Blue Brothers, Harris Brothers, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, we, we should not accidentally call them the blues brothers because of course the blues brothers actually fight nazis in the movie and are not nazis themselves <laughs> the blues there brothers distinction i we love hate, the blues brothers not the I blue hate, brothers i hate illinois nazis man but yeah so yeah do not make the mistake of calling them the blues brothers they are the blue brothers my dad always used to call me elwood because i was ha i would have plain white toast of course you that's a very you thing to have yeah, absolutely. Wake up in the morning, eat some plain toast, eat a cold bagel with nothing on it. Yep. Just grab the cold bagel out of the out of the wrapper in the in the uh, in the in the fridge, and then Is shove the whole you thing do? in your mouth. It's something I've done. Yes. Wait, do, wait. Did you just say the the bagel out of the fridge? That's a conversation we need to have at some point because you're wrong. I don't that Angelo do it. does that. I, <laughs> I, do that. I typically eat the bagel fresh from the bagel place that's down the street from my house, but I would not be opposed to having a bagel that I saved in the fridge and just eating it out of the fridge. You just grab that thing and you shove that in your mouth and you 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 try to take in as much bagel bread as you can with each bite. You're yep. filling your mouth with the bagel. Yep. You're taking no time to savor it. This yep. is going downhill. Let's get back to wrestling. <laughs> so next up, we have uh Skip of the Body Donnas, accompanied by uh, Sonny. Now Skip. Now Skip. These were basically evil personal trainers taking on a famous jobber and at this point kind of offensive Jewish stereotype, Barry Horowitz, who uh, comes out to a really shitty remix of Hava Nagila. I felt very targeted when this was happening. Um They've it's kind of a grudge match. They've been feuding on the whatever the undercard of Raw. It doesn't really matter, but you know uh, Barry comes out hot. He's kind of the underdog babyface. He has a great bullet. 
and he's looking fantastic. He starts out, he just attacks Skip right away, runs wild on him, suplexes him to the outside. Sonny, who was uh, Skip's real-life girlfriend and manager and partner in the Body Donnas, she's trying to get involved. She runs into the ring at one point, but the referee, Earl, Hel- Earl Hebner, tells her to screw off, but she still gets involved and trips Barry on the on the rope and helps Skip take over. Barry Horowitz actually low key kind of over in this match. We can we acknowledge? Do you want to know the, do, do you want to know the gimmick that he had at this point? Losing streak. Yeah, he had the Kurt Hawkins gimmick right here. Yes, where he was losing all the time, and then he got his first ever win um, against Skip on like a Raw or something like that, and, and that's then, why they were. Confused. And then he beat Hikushi too, I think. Yes, he did beat Hikushi. He didn't. Well, I actually looked it up. Uh, I was going to talk about this afterwards, but he didn't show up on Raw again for like months after this match. Like yeah. he, he was just kind of forgotten about. Man, that's yeah. WWE booking if that if I've ever heard it. Oh yeah, yeah. He was kind of a you know kind of classic underdog. He of course for me is over because he was the guy who popularized patting yourself on the back very aggressively. He was the first guy to do that, and I really appreciate him. Um, but yeah, this is. Uh, Again, you know, uh, like the lowest, one of the lowest card possible feuds in WWF programming. And they stick him on SummerSlam. And you mentioned Hakushi. He gets involved later on in this match. So Barry Horowitz, low key, again, kind of over. There's some Barry chants in this match from the crowd. Skip hits a gut wrench suplex, hits a diving fist drop off the top rope. Barry gets a little comeback, but Skip cuts him off. Barry hits a uh, Barry hits a fez press for a two count. Then Skip comes back, hits a power slam. He hits the diving headbutt. Looks like he's about to pin Barry Horowitz, but Skip pulls Horowitz up at the two count, try and give him some more punishment. He goes for a pile driver. Barry Horowitz reverses it into a backdrop. He hits a drop kick. He goes up to the top rope, but Sonny gets involved while the referee is distracted. She crotches him on the top rope. Skip comes back, hits a superplex. It's at this moment that the aforementioned Hakushi comes out. He's been kind of floating around this feud between Skip and Barry Horowitz at the time. He gets, he comes out, he walks up to the ring, and then he does a big springboard jump, but clears everybody. He doesn't actually touch anyone. But in the meantime, him doing this big move helps out Barry Horowitz, which I think was the point. He helps out Barry Horowitz without actually really touching anyone or getting himself disqualified. Uh, It distracts the ref. It distracts Skip. And it gives Barry Horowitz the chance to catch Skip in an inside cradle to get the pin in 11 minutes and 21 seconds. Uh, Barry Horowitz, the winner. They gave them 11 minutes. Uh, I was going to say the same thing. This was like five minutes too long. Yeah, I thought it was eleven minutes too long. Like it, it was. Yeah, uh, I've already said all my notes for this one. Uh, Horowitz had the Hawkins gimmick. He didn't show up again after this match for a while. And also, Skip is Chris Candido. I mean, that's kind of cool. But like, yes, rest in peace to Chris Candido. Or, uh, wait, he yeah yeah he was he was a good guy, right? Yes. Okay. He he ended up breaking his leg in a TNA cage match in mm. like '04, and then. Like got a blood clot in his leg while flying home from the show and died. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Damn, 
I'll say this, like Skip did Skip and Sonny did a great job of like being heels in this match without being overtly so like because a lot of times with heels, you kind of get to the point of comedy. I thought they did a good job of like balancing the act between comedy heel versus heel trying to win. Um, I really didn't like the run in from Hakushi because, again, Hakushi just lost to Barry Horowitz recently on the build up to SummerSlam. So him running out to help Barry Horowitz just to get at Skip. Eh. This just like screams modern day WWE booking in this entire thing. So, you know, you know, at least Vince is consistent. <laughs> I didn't I didn't hate the finish itself, though. Like whether or not you think like it was kind of dumb to have Hakushi there helping out Barry Horowitz, whatever. I thought the finish itself, it was kind of a sort of clever way to like for the, you know, like for somebody to come in and run interference for the baby face, but also at the same time do it in a way where it's like, they're not doing anything that would get you disqualified or like double team or anything. It's not a he heel goes move in here and does kind of like a cool distraction. And you're like, Ooh, look at that. And then he, he pins him, you know? <laughs> and yeah, that's fine. It would have been like a lot weirder if Hakushi, I guess hit Barry Horowitz or was like fighting with Sonny or something or because Barry Horowitz, because, I mean, like, Barry Horowitz is a baby face. You're not going to, like, you don't want the baby face to win because of cheating. Yes. Unless it's Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> because. Eddie's <never> cool. <laughs> yeah. Eddie's actually cool. But, yeah, this was another match that, again, like the last one, who cares? Yep. Pretty much completely who cares. So Barry let's Horowitz move on to wins. something else that we don't care about. Oh, man. We got more stuff that we don't care about. Although, you know, I will notice this in between. I know you're a big Dean Douglas guy, Jacob. He's out here doing his evil teacher shtick in between segments. He does a little thing in between these two matches. And we've got some Dean Douglas later on. But I just wanted to mention that because I know you're a big Dean Douglas guy, the evil school principal. Did I, did I say I was a big Dean Douglas guy? I think you commented on him very positively. I think it was you who, like, enjoyed him on In Your House 4. Yeah, I did on it in In Your House 4, but I didn't in this one. I don't know. It felt, I it felt love weird. Dean Douglas in this one because it was just so corny. It was I great. I don't know if I did. I think it depends on my mood. Like when I was watching In Your House 4, I was like, man, this is kind of interesting trash. So I was cool with Dean Douglas. And this one I was like, God, I'm so bored. Get Dean Douglas off, off, out of my face. Yeah, it was just kind of filler that like padded out like four minutes. But it was whatever. I just I knew I know you had you had said some good things about Dean Douglas, so I, I wanted to bring him up because he's hmm. your boy now. You're a Dean Douglas guy. Yeah, I, I guess I'll just I'll call myself a Mark. It's fine. Uh, so next up, we have the WWF Women's Title on the line. We have Alundra Blaze defending against Bertha Fay. Alundra Blaze, who we had last week uh, when she was wrestling as Medusa in WCW, she was in the scaffold match at Fall Brawl 2000 that we talked about last week took the shittiest elevated bump of all time where she basically landed on an air mattress and the crowd booed her for it. She's taking on Bertha Fay, who is a larger woman, and it's basically just pure, like, comedy thing. Like, they have her as the larger woman who is dating Harvey Whippleman, her manager, who's, like, this trippy dude, and it was basically all played to, like, make fun of... Let's make fun of Harvey Whippleman for liking fat chicks. And let's make uh. fun of the fat chicks for being fat chicks. It's not great. And 
bad. You know, this is it's it's pretty bad all around. Um, pretty soon after this, WWF won't have women's wrestling at all for like five years, and this is kind of the end of this era. They they sort of tried to make the women's division slightly a thing in the mid '90s, early to mid '90s. They stopped pretty soon after this. So it's Bertha Faye and Alundra Blaze. Bertha Faye is a larger woman. She's doing a lot of power moves, a lot of them pretty sloppy. This is not a good match. She gets a leg drop for a two count. She goes up for a middle rope splash, but she misses. That gives Alundra the chance to make a comeback. But Harvey distracts the ref. Harvey Whippleman distracts the ref. Alundra chases him around the ring. She gets back in, hits two middle rope drop kicks on Bertha Faye. Goes for a third, misses that one. Bertha hits a sit-out powerbomb, and she gets the pin just four minutes and 37 seconds of this match, and your new WWF Women's Champion is Bertha Faye. Yeah, this definitely kind of is very dated. It's not the worst thing that we've seen from WWE, but it's far from the best. Blaze actually here kind of actually feels like somebody who could make a run nowadays. Like if she had come around now, I feel like she could have had a solid run. She has the look. I didn't think she was bad in the ring considering that she was going on get against somebody who really couldn't work in the ring. Uh, but again, at least it was only four minutes. There have been worse things all in all. This is still bad. Oh, sorry. Was I supposed to talk bad? Ha 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 ha. Ha, Jake, you're funny. Bad. Next? Yeah, this is not good. <laughs> I, have, I honestly just have nothing to like. I didn't care. I just, it was nothing. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot going on here. And this is like, this, this specifically is a very dark time for women's wrestling in WWF. Like, they basically would only have like two women at a time. And for like the previous year or two, the two women were Alundra Blaze and Bull Nakano, and they actually had really good matches. But then Bull Nakano got released because she actually got arrested for cocaine possession oh. and had to like go back to Japan. And so then it was Alundra Blaze and just Bertha Fett. And then Alundra Blaze leaves, throws the WWF title into a trash can on Nitro, and that's it. And you don't get women's wrestling for a really... like You basically never get like meaningful women's wrestling in WWE for like 20 years. So love it. This is where we're headed. This is kind of, we're, we're coming towards the end right here. Vince. That whole, that whole thing. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't really try and whatever. So next up, we have got a casket match, a classic casket match. We have got the undertaker taking on the Supreme fighting machine member of the Million Dollar Corporation led by Ted DiBiase, comma. Now, I will say this. The Undertaker's original entrance with Paul Bear, I watched this on Sunday night, late Sunday night, after Survivor Series, after the Undertaker send-off, and after the moment where the Undertaker hits his pose and they put up the hologram of Paul Bear. And then going from that to watching this Undertaker entrance with a, a, a still alive Paul Bearer, it hit different for me. <laughs> it was fucking sweet. It was awesome. I felt it. I felt the mystique of the Undertaker. Paul Bearer is so awesome. This was Rest so 
Rest yeah. in freaking peace. Rest in peace, Paul Bear, dude. And this was early Taker too. Like this is like my maybe first real experience with this early of an Undertaker. Yes, this is OG era Dead Man Undertaker. Couple years later, we'll we'll get Ministry of Darkness Taker and his character will really start to evolve over the coming years. But this is like still classic era Undertaker, and it's great. And Paul Bear is one of the greats of all time. And of course, he is taking on the Supreme Fighting Machine, comma, who this is one of uh, Charles Wright's various gimmicks in throughout the uh, WWF. He was originally Papa Shango. He'd become comma. And then eventually he would become the Godfather and find the gimmick that we all know him and love him for. Uh, Kama was basically like a shoot fighter was inspired by at the time the UFC was just starting out and becoming big and becoming popular. Kama was directly inspired by that and specifically inspired by this guy named Kimo, who was this big Hawaiian dude who at UFC three fought Hoist Gracie and even though he lost, he like beat up Hoist enough that like Hoist couldn't continue in the tournament. So he became like a big star after that. Also came in for that fight carrying a like gigantic, like 50 pound wooden cross on his back. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Insane person. Um, but yeah, so comma directly inspired by him. Uh, again, kind of a, a stupid crappy shoot fighter gimmick. Um, so Kama and Taker in the casket match. Taker is really over. To this day, it's just not quite the same when he doesn't have Paul Bear. Big innovation in this match. They actually have a camera inside of the casket, which they go to quite frequently. There are some times that they're actually fighting inside of the casket. So uh, they tease tossing both guys into the casket early. Ted DiBiase, the manager at ringside, gets involved, helps Kama take over. He gets the heat for a long time. He's doing all these kind of shoot style, you know, punches and kicks and stuff. And they, none of them look good. They're all kind of shitty. He uh, tosses Taker out over the top rope and onto the casket. Dibiase walks over and takes a cheap shot at Taker. Pear, uh, Paul Bear, when he sees this, goes ballistic and like sprints after him and it, like has like three referees hold him back, which is just a funny visual because you almost never saw Paul Bear actually move any faster than like a like a slow walk so to see him get mad and like start to run at somebody was funny um comma continues to get the get the heat beat him down he hits a power slam this was really stupid he hits a power slam and then tries to pin him but it's a casket match so no one's counting and it takes him like way too long to realize that wait i can't pin him it's a casket match i have to put him in the casket we then get a really long chin lock. So we get a rest hold in a casket match, which is kind of stupid, needless to say. But Taker comes back. He reverses the chin lock eventually into a back suplex. He clotheslines him. They both go into the casket. For a minute, they're fighting in the casket, and the lid shuts on the boat. Opens back up. Kama starts to drag himself out first. Taker emerges. This is, this, this is shot like a horror movie. Taker emerges out of the casket. He grabs him. He drags him back in. They fight more in the casket. They roll back into the ring. Kama hits a swinging neck breaker. Taker hits a choke slam. He hits the tombstone pile driver. He rolls Kama into the casket, slams it shut. 
and The Undertaker wins the casket match in 16 minutes and 26 seconds. This was, uh, it was, I, it was fine. I actually, as far as casket matches go, I did think this was okay. I thought there was a really cool near fall, like when you were talking about them fighting both in the casket. I thought that Kama trying to crawl out, I thought that was a really good near fall. You know, casket matches are all about how much you care about them. And I've really never seen a casket match that I actually cared about, you know. I kind of like fall into Jake with this one. I thought uh, of all the things on this mat, uh, card, this is definitely a high point. Getting to experience OG Undertaker, because again, his entrance is a little bit different. Again, he has Paul Bear out there with him, who, by the way, I did not realize Paul Bear's voice was that high. Yeah, it was very, oh, yeah. it was very stark oh. when I, <laughs> but it's perfect for him. Like, like he could not have asked for a better role than to be serving as the Undertaker's manager. I also thought it was really interesting to he- like kind of see the backstory between the two and how Kama was kind of like destroying uh, the Undertaker's urn, which he got his power from, uh, destroying the reef, uh, the wraith or whatever it was that was presented by his like minions of the night or whatever. Um, it's very like uh, people were co- comparing uh, the fiend to this version of the Undertaker, and I didn't really get it. And now I really kind of see how that started off. I'm like, oh, okay, so it's kind of goofy, but it's cool. Like it can be goofy and cool at the same time, which is really awesome. You know what match I really want with Paul Bearer involved? What I want Undertaker versus the Dudley Boys from like 2002. I don't remember the exact year. But David, you know the match I'm talking about. Um, are you talking about? Oh yeah, the um, was it the one where they like they kidnapped Paul Bearer? Yeah, and they yeah. put him in the concrete, and then Taker pulled the lever on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah, they buried him in cement. Yeah. The dumbest <laughs> shit ever, bro. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I hope we get that one day. Here is a a question for you, Jake. There is a right answer. What is the only good casket match of all time? Oh, shit. It's I definitely like Great Call the Undertaker, right? I, I, I am, of course, talking about The Undertaker and Heidenreich. Heidenreich, yes. No, no. What is actually the only good casket match of all time? I, just, I, don't, I can't think of what you're, what you're looking for. Royal Rumble 98, Taker and Sean. When Sean hit the... Sean destroyed his back in that match when he yep. hit the edge of the casket. And yep, then he retired. Right. He lost a smile or whatever. <laughs> um, my mom said I lost my smile. Oh, anyway. But, yeah. That's the only good casket match of all time. This one was fine, though. There are definitely worse ones. And again, like, time and a place kind of thing. Watching this Undertaker entrance with Paul Bearer, with the crowd going crazy right after watching the Undertaker farewell at Survivor Series. Like I said, man, it hit me different. It hit me in a different way. The image of Taker dragging Kama into the casket, even though it wasn't, like, the finish of the match... Just again, Jake mentioned it too. It's just a really cool look. I think that's kind of what you're going for in casket matches. You're not necessarily looking for a great match. You're looking for all right. What looks really cool when we shoot it and then show a replay of it. Yeah, it's it, it's at its core because it's not a wrestling match. You're not pinning the guy. You know, you're not trying to work him over with holds. You're trying to put the man in a casket. So it in, inherently, it's like a cinematic type of thing. It should be shot in a cinematic type of way and approached in that kind of way. And that is something that I think at times this match really succeeds in. Um, But again, it's a casket match and they're doing rest holds. And at one point, Kama is trying to pin him, not realizing the the rules of the match. And that just takes you out of it because you're like, what are they doing here? 
you know that that took that took a lot away from this match for me at least so next up we go from the undertaker to his brother in destruction of course we are talking about dr isaac yankum dds of course is later known as kane but at this point he's jerry lawler's evil dentist this is his first Real character in WWF. He went from being the evil dentist to being the fake Diesel after Diesel left for WCW. And then he went on to become the Kane that we all know and love, the devil's favorite demon. But this is a young Glenn Jacobs. He's got a curly blonde mullet. He's shirtless with blue pants. He, ent- he His entrance music is the sound of a dentist's drill. Just rocking cursed it is the most cursed thing i have ever seen in my entire life absolutely terrible and he is taking on one of the all-time greats the hitman bret hart who is as i kind of alluded to earlier on in this podcast he's embroiled in this feud with jerry the king lawler that has lasted for literally two full years and has resulted in King sicking his evil dentist on Brett. So Brett comes out, he's real over, gets a big pop because he's Brett. He's always over and he's always cool. Uh, a lot of this match, again, it's the heel getting the heat. Isaac Yankum overpowers him, he works him over. He hits a guillotine leg drop over the top rope. I will say this I had never seen Kane do this much stuff off the top rope than what Isaac Yankum was doing in this. But he was, he was doing some moves man he was flying around a little bit he hits a guillotine leg drop over the top rope brett comes back brett hits a suicide dive to the outside Hits a back suplex for a near fall hits the diving fish drop locks in the sharpshooter he looks like he's about to finish it off jerry the king waller comes over from the announce table grabs dr yankum's hand and puts it on the rope forces the rope break um yankum then throws brett into the steps beats him down Goes up to the top rope, but Brett tosses him off. He fights back hard. He then takes a cable from ringside. He ties Dr. Isaac Yankum's feet to the ring post and just starts stomping on him. And he stomps on him for a bit. He beats the hell out of him. He then goes and beats up King at the ringside area, but then gets blindsided by Dr. Isaac Yankum doing a big dive from the top rope to the outside onto him. We then get some two-on-one stuff. King goes after him. Dr. Yankum beats him up. He ties him up in the ropes. He beats on him some more. Referees count him. He ignores the count. And we get a disqualification. 16 minutes and 7 seconds of mostly Dr. Isaac Yankum getting the heat on Bret Hart. And we get a disqualification finish out of this. And, I mean, there was an evil dentist in this match. It wasn't great, folks. It was not the best. Now, Jake. Mm. Bro, right, at least this had Brett Hart in it. Like, yeah, Brett working his ass off. Oh, Brett was working his ass off, but like, I could not care less about this match. 16 minutes. So, like, this was not a gimmick match. This had King losing his mind, Vince on commentary by himself. Oh, my God. And it went 19 seconds less than the casket match. At least the casket match. Okay, it's a gimmick match. It's going to last long. This was a straight-up singles match between Bret Hart and an evil dentist for 16 minutes. And it just didn't work. 
and we didn't get a finish. We got a disqualification finish at SummerSlam. The only good thing about this match came after the bell rang, where Bret Hart's just hung up in the ropes, and they're just like picking him up and making sure he's getting choked out and hung up by the ropes and putting all the pressure on his neck. It looked really cool. It looked really painful. Only good spot of the like. Only good thing about this match for me. I mean, I, I didn't care about that. Honestly, I was very disappointed I with the match, that. though. I mean, it did. It, it looked like it looked really brutal. Like the whole like he's hanging by the two ropes by his neck. Mm-hmm. Like that looked brutal. Yeah, sure. Uh, I honestly just couldn't stop hearing that music. <laughs> the drill. Yeah. I mean, don't even call it music. It was the sound of a drill. <laughs> That's yeah. all it was. I what? Why was that his? I don't even. I don't. I'm speechless. Cursed. I mean, cursed. And, I mean, even worse than that. And I think we talked about it in your house four. But like Diesel's original music was just the sound of traffic, Trucks, yeah. like cars backing up and stuff like that, and honking at each other. And that was his gift. That was still his entrance music. I think when he won the WWF title, that was still his entrance music. Like they did not understand entrance music in the nineties. Like they just didn't understand the concept of it. They thought like, Oh, like this guy's from the motor city. So we'll just do the sounds of cars and people will just get it. They'll get his gimmick. And, and, and they will, they'll like understand it and appreciate it instead of wanting to blow their brains out and change the channel. Now, we talk about some bad entrance music. We got some good entrance music coming up. We do. We have some great entrance music coming up. But I just, yeah, it it almost ruins the entire show that they (laughs) would think that you could just do a dentist drill for a theme song. For three minutes. It's just a, as he slow, like at least like sprint into the (laughs) ring, dude. Slow ass walking to the <laughs> ring, making me listen to this dentist drill. I hated my life. Dog shit. Utter dog shit. But thankfully, that's all over. Don't need to talk about it again. We get to the thing on the show that we can all agree probably was really good. We have a ladder match for the Intercontinental Championship. Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon a rematch of the all-time classic at WrestleMania 10 the year before, one of the great WrestleMania matches of all time. They're running it back here at SummerSlam 95. This is not technically the main event, but, man, it feels like the main event. Even though it's for the secondary title, the fans are all hyped for this matchup. Sean is over. Razor is over. It's great. So the first half of this match is essentially Razor Ramon working Shawn Michaels' leg. We get Shawn climbing. Shawn is like the first guy to really climb up the ladder, but Razor dumps him, puts his leg inside of a ladder, and stomps on it a bunch of times. He keeps hitting his leg with the ladder. He sets up a ladder in the corner, and Razor picks him up and drives him knee first into the ladder, picks up the ladder and throws it on his leg. He does does the whole thing. Every single thing you can think of on Sean's leg, he does it. Tries to take advantage. Razor tries to climb the ladder, but Sean, even with the bum leg, he does this desperate springboard dive and boots Razor Ramon off the ladder. Sean gets his big comeback. He back suplexes him off of the ladder. He whips him into the ladder a few times. 
He goes up, hits a big moonsault press. He then sets up the ladder in the corner. He climbs all the way up to the top. And he tries to recreate his big famous dive off the top of the ladder from WrestleMania 10, the one that they show in all the video packages, even to today. He goes up and does the dive. This time, Razor gets out of the way. Sean misses. And now Razor's got himself a fighting chance. They both climb the ladder together. They fight each other at the top. The Razor tips over. They both take big spills and they end up on the outside. Razor goes underneath the ring. He goes and gets a second ladder. Now, uh, again, these are, this is very early in the development of the ladder match. I mean, the, the Sean and Razor ladder matches are some of the earliest ever televised ladder matches. So a lot of the conventions that you see in ladder matches today are getting made up while you watch them. Razor Ramon, in this match, innovates the idea of having multiple ladders in the ladder match. What? It, it takes a second ladder. And so this is like the first time that you see two people both climbing separate ladders at the same time. This is the first time they ever do that spot, which I think is awesome. I just love that. Like, I love seeing that. So Razor goes and he gets his own ladder. They have both ladders in the ring. Razor hits the Razor's edge on him, tries to climb to the top. They end up both climbing the ladders. Sean hits a sweet chin music from his ladder all the way across boots Ramon off of his ladder. He then jumps off his ladder for the belt, but he misses and he crashes down to the ring. Razor then gets up. He teases the Razor's edge on Sean, but Sean backs, back drops him out of the ring. He climbs the ladder. He reaches. He misses the belt again and falls down. He gets up. He's all pissed. He's like kicking the ropes, but then he finally sets up the ladder, climbs up, pulls down the belt, 25 minutes and four seconds. Shawn Michaels retains the Intercontinental Championship. Razor afterwards, he grabs the belt. He's all pissed. Then he hands it back to Shawn, and they shake hands. And the crowd goes wild for the finish. They go wild for Shawn. And then backstage, Dean Douglas is talking shit. So Razor Ramon strides on up to him and kicks, him at, kicks his ass and sends him packing. This is the high point of the show. It's not as good as the WrestleMania 10 match, but it is a damn good match. Yeah, th thank God this match was on this card. Otherwise, I think that it's absolute trash. Um, I mean, Angela, have you seen the WrestleMania 10 match? I have not, but like, I, I've seen clips of it, obviously, and I hear the legends of it being like one of the greatest ladder matches of all time. Yeah. And just watching this match, I really believe that because it's not like, it's not a barn burner, we'll say, like because a lot of get a lot of the modern ladder matches have three, four, five, six guys usually. Right. This is just two, and you don't really see just a two man ladder match anymore. Rarely do you see a two man ladder match that is well paced and interesting and keeps you on the edge of your seat. This kind of falls in that category of like they're not doing a lot of craziness. But everything they're doing feels important. Similar like what we talked about with the CM Punk John Cena match. I think my favorite thing about this, though, is that it feels a lot more natural and less scripted. Like, it just feels like there are two guys going off each other and just kind of going back and forth, back and forth within the realm of the match. They don't plan this stuff out. Maybe you have a few things here or there, but it did feel like a lot of this was just a natural match without a lot of booking in terms of making sure every minute detail gets hit. It feels like they just kind of go out there, have great chemistry, and put together a great match just on the fly. 
Yeah, it's, it's it, super hard to have a ton of near falls in a two-man ladder match. I say near falls like like near attempts. You know what I mean? Near finishes. In a six man. Yeah, near finishes. In a six-man, you can have a bunch of guys running in, and like one guy stops it, he's about to get it. Another guy runs in. And two men, it's it's hard to build those finishes, but I think they do a really good job in both matches. Yeah, and, and to kind of speak to what Andrew's talking about, like it makes it feel realer because yeah, because they are kind of messing up a lot. You yeah. know, they're falling off of ladders. Like Sean tries to jump off of his ladder and grab the belt, and he falls down and eats it in front of everybody. Like it makes it feel like you know it is a struggle and it is like a dangerous kind of high risk thing because there's very few ways to like climb up a ladder in the middle of the ring and try to grab this thing off a hook and actually do it gracefully and make it look like athletic and good. You know, you're going to be like, you know, the things are going to be wobbling. You're going to be trying just not to eat it and fall down and break your neck. And, you know, it, it makes it feel like, and especially considering the fact that there hadn't been very many ladder matches before. These are two guys that haven't really done this very often before. They're, so they're, they're figuring it out as they go too. And there's one spot like early in the match where Sean is climbing and then he falls off the ladder, but his leg gets stuck in the rung. And so he sa- so he sells the leg injury and then you have Razor target the leg uh, kind of in that beginning. But I don't, it didn't look like Sean took that bump on purpose. It just looked like, okay, so this is where I fall off the ladder. And it just so happened that his leg got stuck in the ladder so he could sell an injury. Yeah. And the ending of the original WrestleMania 10 match which um, Razor climbs up and gets the belt. And then, like, as he grabs the belt, like, his ladder that he was on tips over and falls. And he, like, grabs the belt and he, like, falls from the top to the ground. Like, that that happened. And it actually was, like, not scripted. Like, the ladder legitimately fell over on him. And he, like, grabbed the belt and just fell. And it wasn't planned at all. Like, he was probably just going to like stand at the top of the ladder and pose, but he fell down and it's like a great dramatic finish to that match. And it's, it was completely unscripted and like complete accident, but it makes it feel that much more real because like, again, there's in real life, there's very few ways to do something like that and make it look graceful and cool. You know what I mean? Again, Mm -hmm. most of us are probably going to just be trying to not fall over and look like idiots and it's the same thing for them, and it makes it feel more real. Especially because these ladders look like they're just like, they don't look balanced. Because every time they get up on those ladders, they're tipping right away. And now, I've climbed a couple ladders, but not, obviously, this level. So, like, the stability, I'm not sure if that has to do with the ring. I'm not sure if that has to do <laughs> with the ladder. Has climbed ladders. <laughs> I've climbed a ladder, too, in my time. But they were just the minor league type of ladders. But like, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of silly. Like, it's almost like goofy how those ladders just immediately lose their balance as you have these two guys climbing up them, whether that's because they're like set up on a ring that's not supposed to support a ladder. I don't know. It just, but again, I thought it added to the match. It wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, they were legitimately just like ladders that they got at like Home Depot. (laughs) They weren't gimmicked. Whereas, whereas now, like, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I, I feel like it's weird that I'm talking about like ladder quality right now, but <laughs> like the ladders that they have now in WWE ladder matches, they look like the most perfect, like ideal ladders ever made. The ladders that they, that they use in matches now have got to be the lightest ladders in the world because I, just like Angelo has climbed a lot of ladders, I've moved a lot of ladders in my time and those things are heavy. 
Yeah. And people are just like throwing them around and like taking bumps through them. And... Yeah, they're like throwing them into the ring. And it's like, if I try to lift up a heavy ladder the wrong way, I throw my back out. Yeah. But there's like, like the ones they have now are like these, these beautiful gleaming ladders. Made of aluminum. Like, like if they had ladders on the Starship Enterprise, that's what these ladders, the, the, they would look like these ladders. Whereas these are like, yeah, like this is some like, like shitty ladder that like, my dad, my you know, my dad paints houses on the weekends, and this is the ladder that he uses. You know, <laughs> so like it's 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 different. It makes it feel more real. Like I could own that ladder. You know what I mean? That's the same ladder <laughs> that I have in my basement. But that's the charm of wrestling, though. Is like it, it, it they the moments that feel real are the best ones. Yes, they've been scripting too much for these ladders. They need to just let these ladders just hang out, man. They need to let them just free ball. Unscripted ladders, baby. <laughs> no one, no one react to what I said. Now I feel really awkward. It's all right, David. That's how I feel every day. It's a great match, man. This is the highlight of the show. The fans are going crazy, and then the show ends. Yeah, and then the show ends. Yep, you know, it that's ends it. On, the, on on this perfect note, this great ladder match. Again, I don't think it's quite as good as the WrestleMania one, but it is pretty great. And with that, we do, finish our SummerSlam 1995 episode. They just these two guys and again. Talked about it a little bit. A two-man ladder match, inherently, because it's going to be one guy climbing and then he falls off. Another guy climbing and he falls off. There's not going to be a bunch of guys zipping in and out, doing a bunch of high spots, going 100 miles an hour. It's inherently going to be slower. And it is dependent on those two guys to ratchet up the tension and get you on the edge of their seat. And Shawn Michaels is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. He does a, just a maestro performance and I'm watching this match 25 years after it happened. And I'm legit on the edge of my seat watching this match. And I know who wins. It's <laughs> awesome. It was an awesome match. And yeah, that's that's the end of the show. Uh, they didn't do Diesel and Mabel in the main events. They all decided that it was a bad idea. And everyone went home. And that was it. Honestly, we could end it there. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm okay with we had, it. No, we have, <laughs> let's just listen. We, started, we decided to make this podcast... To talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. David, tell us about the match. So, the main event is for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. It is the champion Diesel, of course, also known as Kevin Nash. Taking on Mabel, also known as Viscera, Big Daddy V. The various gimmicks we remember him as when we were kids. Um, It's two big guys. Mabel, at the time, billed as King Mabel. He won the King of the Ring earlier on in the year. He walks out on his throne. He's got some really jacked dudes carrying him to the ring on this throne. And they're getting a workout. He's way, He is billed at 560-ish pounds. And he looks every, every bit of them. Um, it's, again, two really big guys doing some crappy power stuff back and forth. Uh, Mabel takes over for a while. It's a side slam in the ring. Ben just kind of drops his big ass on, on Kevin Nash's back. He goes for the seated senton, but he misses. Then they do a ref bump. Mabel's cornerman, Sir Moe, he gets in. They try to do some two-on-one. Diesel fights back. He gets tossed to the outside. Mabel hits a big leg drop on him. All of a sudden, Diesel gets some babyface backup. Here comes Lex Luger. In what would turn out to be Lex Luger's final ever WWF appearance, he shows up uh, wearing an awesome American flag button-down shirt. 
He sends Sir Mo packing backstage. Mabel comes in, hits the belly-to-belly -belly suplex. The referee just wakes up in time to do a very slow count. Diesel barely kicks out at two. Mabel goes up for a splash from the top rope. He misses. And then Diesel goes to the middle rope. It's a diving clothesline. He couldn't do the jackknife powerbomb in this match because Mabel was just too goddamn big. So he does a diving clothesline off the middle rope. Ref does a super slow count, but he still gets the three count. And Diesel, Kevin Nash, retains the title in nine minutes and 14 seconds to retain the WWF title. And the next night on WCW Monday Nitro, Lex Luger arrives on Nitro, makes his WCW return, and we kick off the era of the Monday Night Wars. Oof. This was boring. Terrible, boring match. It sucked. I know we say that a lot with these mid-90s WWF ones, but just go back and watch it. I think the big thing with WWF, if you were following back then, was getting those promos on the weekly shows, like getting the promos on Rock where you see the characters, because honestly, the promo cutting back then was very solid. Like Even the uh, King Mabel promo that he's cutting beforehand, it's fine. It's a... You know, you get to a glimpse of the character. They get to have more personality. It feels like it doesn't feel like a cookie cutter. Um, although King Mabel's ring gear, we need to discuss because it is just absolutely awful. Terrible. It is, it is amazing that Big Daddy V had the best ring gear out of all any of his Rose characters. <laughs> and he just wore liked, big black suspenders. I liked the um, the sort of like silk pajamas he wore as the, as the world's largest love machine, Viscera. <laughs> It was it, it was fine, but I feel like the suspenders are really the best I, ones. I actually loved Big Daddy V's uh, uh, ring gear. I thought it was high, high tier. I, I didn't. I think I've said this before. <laughs> I would look at him and I would say, please, sir, put those away. <laughs> I don't want to see those on my TV. Just put them away, please. <laughs> I, will, oh. I will say, though, like Viscera, the, he moves around really well for a guy his size. Um, How big was he? He was big. Like he was listed pretty big. at like 563 or some odd pounds. He was billed at six foot nine. I don't, I doubt he was actually that tall. Definitely not six, nine. I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd say he was definitely that weight. Although I you, could see him. he was definitely at least four fifty. How big I mean, was they Nash? Worked, they worked all those numbers, but man, how, like, Nash is a big guy, man. Like was he, was he like a six niner? Because uh, uh, Mabel's not giving up that much height. Nash was billed at 6'10". And Nash was, was legit. Nash played center at the University of Tennessee. He was a big guy. So, like, I could buy Mabel at, like, 6'7". I mean, he Maybe, was he was, pr he was pretty big. He, again, like, when, when you got to, like, the 2000s, he was still one of the tallest guys on the roster. Uh, yeah. But like he he moves way better than a guy his size should. Not just like the fact that he's six seven, but the fact that he's also like four hundred eighty seven pounds. Um, like he goes through the ropes pretty well. He takes these dives really well. I will say I did cringe really badly like at the leg drop that he hits on the outside. Uh, the just the butt slam he hits in the middle because I'm thinking about the amount of weight that he's putting down on Kevin Nash. And like Kevin Nash just like slipped a disc from that. Because it just looks brutal. But outside of that, like, there's nothing that Diesel really does that gets me excited. I've, I said this last time. I just think I don't like Kevin Nash as a main eventer. 
I don't like Kevin the Kevin Nash eras because all of his main event matches are like ten minutes at most and just boring. Because yep. the yep. the one thing I was thinking about in this match, I'm like, okay, so how is he going to hit the jackknife power bomb on King Mabel when he's 487 pounds? And he wins the match with a flying clothesline that did not look good. Hey, what's the difference between a regular power bomb and a jackknife power bomb? I think with the jackknife power bomb, he would just kind of get him up and drop him down real quick. He wouldn't like hold him up. He would just kind of do it fluidly. Boom, you know. Hmm. I think okay. that was the difference. It was like it was just quicker or whatever. <laughs> I, I guess I, that's that's how I've always sort of figured. I, mean, I don't know. I just I was curious because I it looks like looks like a power bomb to me. But it is. He just got his own little stank on it, you know. <laughs> Put some stank on. And kind of to clarify what Angelo says, like, yeah, I mean, Mabel does move relatively well for a guy his size, but that's not to bar. say that he like moves that well. It's a, that's know? a low bar. To- like his his only competition, like in ter- like he moves relatively well for a guy his size. Relative to the one other guy who was at his size, who was Yokozuna, who couldn't move at all. This is true. Bruce, Bruce Pritchard thought that Yokozuna could go. Maybe he could go in 1990. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I, I was expecting you to shit on Bruce. I never saw a good Yokozuna match. I've seen a bunch of them. There's never a good one. Nope. Nope. So. Nope. Nope. I think, I think this is just exemplifying how little we gave a shit about all of this. Like, we're making shit up to talk about at this point. Yeah. No, and I mean... didn't care about it. This is 1995 WWF. As I kind of have talked about before, very bad time. In basically every way you can quantify it for the WWF. They had, you know, all of the big stars who had carried them in the 80s were all gone. They had tried to make some stars... And it had been very hit and miss. You have a Shawn Michaels. You have a Bret Hart. But at this point, the guys, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to push Diesel. It's not working. They're trying to push Mabel. It's not freaking working. They were trying to push Yokozuna. It was not freaking working. Wait, are you saying that and WWE, WWF was struggling to make stars? Yeah, yeah this is the, the new generation, baby. This was the new generation of the WWF. And like, yeah, you got a Bret Hart, got a Shawn Michaels. Hell, you even got Razor Ramon. But they spent as much time outside of like the main event as in it. And Razor Ramon never won the title, never even really challenged for the title. And then, you know, people left and people got hurt and then they were screwed almost until uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin showed up and saved everyone's asses. And that's why Vince McMahon is still making money today. But. Bad time right here in '95. This is one of those shows that if you have the network, you don't want to. You probably don't need to watch it in its entirety. Watch the casket match, I guess. Watch the ladder match for sure. But there's nothing else that you really need to like tune into. Really, don't watch any of the '90s. Like, like you can watch like Hulkamania, and then you can skip everything up until like WrestleMania '97, and you won't miss anything. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with David. Yeah. It's like maybe two cool matches, and that's like it. I mean, you can skip the whole thing. But yeah, uh, SummerSlam 95, baby. We had a cool ladder match, and we had a bunch of other stuff. 
So let's jump into our two and a half marks. How about let's start with Angelo? Sure thing. Uh, let's go with my half mark. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I really liked the Dean Douglas segments. I thought they were corny. I thought they were funny. I thought that he was entertaining in terms of like just being a smarmy smartass. Uh, it got a chuckle out of me. It was one of the few things on this card that I really did enjoy. And, of course, Dean Douglas, also known as Shane Douglas, Pittsburgh legend, local hero in Pittsburgh. And, of course, we had him in the scaffold match last week. The franchise. Yeah, the franchise, Shane Douglas. The scaffold match was called the Pittsburgh Plunge Scaffold Match because he was from Pittsburgh, and we're in Pittsburgh. This is his hometown. And this is his big, like, like, homecoming is he gets to be a complete putz and then get beaten up by Razor Ramon. It's great. Um, my one mark is going to the old school HBK and Taker because Sean is just oozing charisma at this point. Like it is dripping off of him. Uh, the promos that he's cutting, him coming out to the ring and then like taking off his entrance gear, just oozing charisma. And again, the sexy boy song. Always a banger. Always great to hear. Always puts a smile on my face. And then you have like OG Taker. And again, this is my first real exposure to OG Taker. And he just encap... I can't say the word. Encapsulates. Thank you. Encapsulates you while you're watching it. It's just like, this is a phenomenon. It's it's why he's called the Phenom. It's just mystical. And it's something that I would definitely recommend watching. Honorable mention is to the old school ring because the sounds it makes was very unique. You don't really hear those sounds like the ring kind of like shaking, the turnbuckles moving a lot, the ropes kind the of clanging. spot that David talked about was incredible. I really like the sounds, but, and I told you guys this in the group chat, negative two marks for Vince on commentary. Jake, you told me something freshman year is that sometimes you just have to be comfortable in the silence and not have to say something. Because the people that constantly speak are the ones that are really annoying. Vince is that did, guy. Did I say something like that? Because that sounds very prophetic coming from me. That, w- that was uh, something that you had said. Because I think about it frequently. I'm like, you know what? That's some of the best <laughs> advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> I'm glad I gave you some great advice one time. But Vince was just there, does. Vince was, just, there, was there any particular reason that Jake was telling you this at this point in your lives? Probably because I was talking too much. Because I was no, being a really not you, Angelo. Pro- probably because I was like always nervous back in like my freshman year. Because I'm like, I don't know who the heck you people are. Uh, but Vince just doesn't shut up ever on this commentary. He talks throughout the entire thing. The amount of times he says one, two, three, he got him. Oh wait, no, he didn't. How many times does he do that? Like every it's match. every match. It's like five times a match. It's insufferable. You have King there just like making very funny jokes. Like not even I say funny is like he thinks he's hysterical. They're really bad. Like they're not even me bad where you groan. They're so bad. They're like, that's not even funny. Like, how are you thinking about it? It's just things that he's saying off the top of the dome that make no sense, no context. And then Vince is just at this while he's saying a lot of things, he's saying nothing meaningful. He doesn't describe the match. He just says, maneuver, maneuver, maneuver. It's awful. It's really bad. And, like, this is the second time we've had him on commentary. I think in your house four, he was just as bad. I hate Vince on commentary. Just go back. I'm so happy that we live in the timeline where he has decided to make himself, like, the face of the corporation instead of staying on commentary. Because if he stays on commentary, WWE never gets off the ground. 
Oh, what a maneuver. God. I think it's funny because, like, you know, Vince is, like, still to this day the reason why WWE announcing sucks because he still, like, produces the announcers and, like, he's the guy in the headset telling them what to do. And I guess he thinks, that, like, the way he did it is the way everyone should do it. So, like, no one ever calls moves because Vince thinks it's stupid. They don't care what the names of the moves are. But they do. Yeah. Like, he calls everything, like, oh, great maneuver or whatever. Like, I read the I read the Meltzer newsletters every week from, like, the time. And, like, he has a – he, like, makes a crack during, like, when he's, like, recounting the Hakushi match where he, like, he says, like, all the cool moves Hakushi does. It's, like, after every move, he's, like – or as the announcers would call it, oh, a great move. He hits a space flying tiger jab. Or as the announcers call it, great move. A great move. I was like, <laughs> you're on point, Dave. You're on it. Jake, oh, you're up. Man. All right. So starting off, uh, Angelo, I'm going to piggyback off of you. Negative half a mark to that announced team because it was trash. And, you know, I, I think that all of the things you say definitely line up. But it just seems like Vince took care of everything else. And then he was like, well, going to go do commentary now. Like, he didn't practice anything. He didn't set anything up. He was like, I got seven lines. I'm good. Bad. Just and the thing, the thing about it is Vince was like the play-by-play commentator before he was even like the promoter of the WWF. Yeah. When his dad was running it, like he was the commentator. Like he had been the play-by-play commentator for like 20 years, and he never got better at it. Nope, he never changed. Well, he's kind of like Michael Cole, like – this is my like Michael Cole's been doing this for 20 years now, and he's worse now than when he started. Yeah, agreed. Wow, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Cole started in 2000, he was a backstage guy for a couple years and then went out to the booth for the first time. But yeah, just absolutely trash. Um, I'm gonna give negative one mark to a guy we didn't see that much, but whenever we saw him, I wanted him off of my screen immediately, and it's Doc Hendricks. So, negative marked on Doc Hendricks because. <laughs> That it that promo that Mabel cuts and Doc Hendricks is like shrieking at the camera while he does it. It was like, dude, what is happening? You know, and I thought about just giving it to all the backstage segments, but you know, Mabel was never claimed to be a great promo. I guess some people, <laughs> Angelo, find enjoyment in Dean Douglas. That's fine. But when Michael P.S. Hayes is on my screen, the only thing I want to happen is I want him to get off of my screen. Or hit a DDT. Or hit a DDT. Please, for the love of God, do something. Uh, And I'm giving a full two marks to a high power level man, and that is shoulder-length earring Shawn Michaels. Mm. Specifically, not just earring Shawn Michaels. He wore earrings a lot. He had an earring that went to his nipple. Did you guys see that? Yes. yes. (laughs) And it wasn't like just one piece. It was like a hundred pieces with like feathers that just went all the way down. And it looked like one of those things that white girls get whenever they go on vacation. Like they get the feather in their hair and like the multicolored strings. That's exactly what it looked like. Sean, when he has that in his ear, is the sexy boy. I bet yeah. you girls went crazy for that in the night. He showed we wait, we forgot he mentioned he showed his ass during the match with Razor Ramon. Razor Ramon pulled down his pants and flashed <laughs> the crowd. Shawn Michaels would show his ass during matches a lot. And 90s. you know what? I bet people liked it. Yes. That's that's the boy toy Shawn Michaels right there. <laughs> uh, he's not yeah. your boy toy, but he kinda is, so <laughs> he's the boy toy and he's the sexy boy. He could be both. 
Oh it's man! Great. So so two marks to uh, nipple length ear- earring, Shawn Michaels. I'll make one comment on your marks, Jake. I will accept Michael P.S. Hayes on my screen if it means I get to listen to the Bad Street USA theme song. Okay, fair, fair, fair. Banger. Still to this day, a banger. <laughs> so my three marks, I'm going to give a half mark to making references to your past matches. I liked how in the ladder match, you have multiple spots taken from the WrestleMania 10 match between these two guys, a lot of homages to that match and kind of building off of those spots. Like, you know, you have Sean going up to try and do the famous dive, but this time, you know, Razor's, Razor's seen it happen. It already happened to him once. He gets out of the way and then he takes advantage. I love little stuff like that because it just, it adds to your, you know, enjoyment of the whole storyline. It's making references, I mean, to, to things that you've already seen. It makes sense in the story. I just think it adds a lot of depth to what you're watching. And I, I love seeing that. I love kind of little little references and little little stuff tossed in like that. Like one of the reasons why, you know, the, you know, for instance, like the, I, I know something that you love, Jake, the Gargano and Champa feud is filled mm-hmm. with that. Filled with yeah, callbacks to their past the matches, building on their previous spots and, and adding new twists to them. Love that. And you see some of that in this match. I thought it was great. I'm going to give my full one mark to Hakushi. I already went into my full thing about how Hakushi was too good and too cool for 1995 WWF, and he really was one of the standout performers for me on this show and in this entire era of American wrestling. I think he's freaking sweet, and we didn't really get enough of him, and that's a shame. And I'm going to give a full negative two marks to let down main events. We saw this with Fall Brawl 2000, where the emotional peak of the show felt like the just madness of the Goldberg-Steiner no-DQ match, and the crowd gets all keyed up and a bunch of stuff happens, and then there's just this main event between Kevin Nash and Booker T, and it's just a match, and nobody cares. And it's just like, why did that go on last? The only reason why it went on last is because it was for the WWE. It was it was for the world title, but maybe we need to untether the idea that we, we need to untether the world title from the fact that it has to go on last in certain cases because there was no way, realistically, that a Diesel Mabel match could have ever possibly followed the ladder match between Sean and Razor Ramon, which was. 100% going to be amazing, and the crowd was going to be up for it. They were going to be going crazy. And then you go from that into Diesel and Mabel. And they're kind of in the death spot, even though they're in the main event. And that should never happen. I always feel like the emotional peak of the show should be at the main event. And the last two shows that we've watched, that did not happen. And it, I, I think the show as a whole really suffered for it. Now, I will say, like, there are certain places where you can put the World Championship match. Like, let's say you put it at the five spot here. I don't think that works. I think you have to have at, at the fir- uh, very first part of the show or towards the end, but it doesn't have to be the main event. Like, if they had swapped the ladder match with the heavyweight championship match, that's fine, especially given the context of these matches. Yeah. I think But that at SummerSlam, can, they would never do that. I think that you can... I, I don't ever hate the idea necessarily of, like, starting the show off with the world title. If you have something like 
a Diesel or a, a, a Razor Ramon Sean ladder match that you know the crowd's going to be super hot for, and that's going to be like the peak in terms of like crowd, like the crowd being hot. Like you could start off the show with the world title, and that kind of gets the fans into it right away. Like, oh man, they're coming at us hard with the world title first. That's cool. It also like lowers right. your expectation because you don't expect a. It's weird because you have nothing else to compare it to on the show. So if it's the first match, like, okay, so I'm automatically going to think this is okay. And then you measure the rest of the show based off that first match. Yeah. I don't know. Could have been better. Now that I think about it, you know, yeah, we've had the last two shows that we watched were like this where you had a letdown main event. But the commonality there is Kevin Nash. That should tell you a lot. So maybe I'm just complaining about Kevin Nash main events. How do you make so much money? He was big and he could talk. That's all you need. Let's take this guy and his gimmick is going to be he's a truck. <laughs> he is. He's basically <laughs> his gimmick is that he is Optimus Prime. <laughs> he's a version of Optimus Prime that has sex. Ooh, big sexy. Yeah, he's big sexy. And that's and, more like and Optimus Fine. Jesus Christ! No, that's not good. No, we're, <laughs> we're going to end the show on that one. We're gonna we're gonna walk away on that one. So that will wrap up our coverage. WWF SummerSlam 1995. Normally, this is where we hit the randomizer, but we're coming up on another round number. Next one up is going to be episode 30. So as we always do when we hit the round number, we just kind of pick something else to watch. Give us a break from watching Kevin freaking Nash every week. And this time we are going to go somewhere we have never been before. And yes, Kevin Nash is on the show, but he's not in the main event. So we're improving a little bit. <laughs> we are going to TNA total nonstop action wrestling TNA Lockdown 2009. We wanted to watch some bad WCW last week. We got it. Let's watch some bad TNA. Let's watch some old dudes that shouldn't be on television anymore. Let's was, watch TNA Lockdown 2009. The main event is a steel cage match. Now, the, the whole gimmick of the Lockdown pay-per-view is that all of the matches were in the steel cage. Right. The main event is a steel cage match between Sting and Mick Foley. Now, we saw Mick Foley in, what, 2005? And he could barely move at all. Here's Mick Foley wrestling a 15-minute main event in a pay-per-view in 2009. Not optimistic about how that one's going to turn out. And he went over. Yes. But we got a lot of guys on the show. We got, like, a mixture of old WCW guys and older guys like Nash, Booker T, Steiner, Sting. But we've also got... Like a lot of good younger wrestlers. We got some AJ Styles. We got some Christopher Daniels. We got some Jay Lethal. We even got a young Xavier Woods on the show. We have Abyss, who I remember loving in TNA. Really cool monster heel of it. I'm really looking forward to uh, 3D versus Beer Money. Probably was awesome. So, yeah. There should be a, a decent mix of really cool stuff and just dumpster trash which was really the entirety of TNA's entire existence. So looking forward to it. So next week, we're we'll be watching TNA Lockdown 2009 here on the Two and a Half Marks podcast. So until then, I'm David Statman. And for my good friends, Angelo Inglisa and Jake Long, 
Thanks, everybody, for listening.